<clears throat> I was slow to really say anything. Looks like there's a lot of unity going on out there, and I had something to say about that in Sunday school, so I've just like enjoyed listening to the, to the chatter and just uh, the fellowship uh, this morning. Hopefully, you got a bulletin out in the foyer. Um, man, we've got a lot going on here at Union Baptist, um, whether you're a regular attender or um, you know, you're a longtime member or, or just visiting for the first time. Um, so I do want to call attention to a few things. So I'm not going to read your bulletin for you. Just I want to encourage you to grab one uh, on your way out. Um, but uh, right out of the gate, I, I want to mention the uh, the membership class. Um, it's something you'll see a sign-up sheet for on one of the tables in the foyer. And all that is is a um, it's a time for frankly all of our members, uh, new and old, um, to to have an opportunity to to come and take this class and. And it's only like six weeks, is that right, Brother Andrew? Six weeks, it's time to really dive in and understand what it means to be a member of a church, to covenant together, um, and what it is that we believe, maybe a little bit of our history. Um, and so it's a perfect time just to fill it out. You don't have to be a member if you come out of it. If you're just like kind of curious, like what are these people about, that's a great opportunity. Um, that's in the bulletin. So it's coming up here very shortly, and it's shortly after our uh, our promotion Sunday, what we call it in Sunday school, whenever all the kids you know step into their new classrooms and things, and so as we do that, I, I want to explain to you what our Sunday school is about. Um, over the past couple years, if you have attended Sunday school here at Union, you have been through the entire Bible, not short devotional times. But we have spent time on, on a lot of the high points, not just as stories, but we have seen the entire Bible, all of Scripture, Old Testament and New, and studied it and dived into it together and seen how it points to Jesus Christ. And, um, and so we've done that. Next week, we have all been through the Bible from young and old, the kids through the, the adults. We've all been through the same sort of material that's for a purpose. That's so that you can go home. You can talk about this with your kids. And, and there's a, already a foundation been laid by our amazing volunteer staff, who I'm going to introduce here momentarily. Get involved with it. Come September, we're going to do it again. We're going to go through the entire, begin that long journey through all of Scripture. Again, not the same old stories, but just diving even deeper into what this word of God has for us. And, and as we, y'all come in this door, and I kind of like it, it, it is a little bit newer, it might be because I'm young, but there's a, these big old bold letters on the wall. That's our vision here, is we exist to grow disciples, to glorify God by growing disciples in community. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's all that we do is, is serving that purpose. And so... Uh, this is one of these biggest areas for us to really dive in where someone's not just throwing this information at you, but where you can engage, you can ask those questions. We can really uh, benefit from each other's testimony and from, from input from all of our, of our, of our students in, in each class. So I, I do want to encourage you to that. Uh, it's a great opportunity even to get to know each other if you are new or, or you want to really familiarize yourself with the, with other families in the church it's a great opportunity so I'm going to just uh, sort of introduce some of our teachers and um, and then I'll let you just kind of wave or something so that we can 
you know, see you, and uh, that's, it's not a short thing, okay, it's not, but wave, and maybe just, you know, if you've got students in, in that age group, maybe even say your, your age group, class group, so that if you've got kids, man, they can, you'll know where they can go, you'll have a familiar face, they're all very nice people, so Julie, would you start us off, this is Julie Newton, okay, she, uh, she feeds them, Julie's gifted, um, this isn't something, these people aren't filling a chair, these are ministers of the gospel at Union Baptist Church. These are people that are gifted, gifted by God for the service in this church. I'm th so thankful for her. And then Stacy. All right, this is Miss Stacy. All right, we've got Miss Kelly. Where's, okay, I see her. <laughs> yeah, I love it. But, but each one of these will tell you promotion Sunday is when they, they hold back tears. I think they all love it. Um, and then, all right, Brother Mike Gaynor. Yeah, I, you know, I love this, man, and he's great. I love to hear Mike pray. You know, these are faithful people. And then Brother Andrew, does, <laughs> hear from him later, right? And then Jared Gaynor, <clears throat> another pastor here at Union Baptist Church. All right, and then we have one more, Bessie Collins, who's a new member to our team. She's a substitute so that no one slips through the cracks. Uh, another familiar face. These are people who the Lord has placed in these positions. Um, and so um, that's it. I, I, uh, I helped Jared uh, from time to time teach. I taught this morning, and, and I, I helped to communicate with all of these awesome teachers, and I can't express enough love and joy that I have in seeing them minister in this church. Um, so now I'm going to ask that Brother Jared would come up here, lead us in God's word, and, uh, and, and in a word of prayer too. I just want to welcome you again to Union Baptist Church, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Joel. It's sort of in the middle. Book of Joel, chapter 2. I want our call to worship to come from verses 12 through 17 this morning. Joel obviously was a prophet to the uh, Israelites. He, he's uh, one of the Old Testament prophets. So in context, this was a word delivered to them. But I want us to hear an invitation that God gave to them through the prophet Joel uh, because I believe at the core of it that invitation still stands for us today. So read with me if you have it there, starting with verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Let me pause there so if you don't understand that statement, rending the garments was something they would actually tear their clothing as a part of contrition so that when they were deeply grieved by something that was that was something that they would do so what God's calling them and by extension us to do is to not have outward contrition but inward contrition we should be inwardly sad inwardly moved over our sins and the condition of our hearts so let's pick up again there in verse 13 return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep 
and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Will you pray with me this morning? Father, as we read the words of your prophet Joel, God, we see a beautiful, uh, we hear a beautiful invitation. And God, my prayer and desire, my, my request this morning is that you would help us to hear that ringing in our own hearts, God, in, in this context. God, we are no better than the Israelites of that day who brought their sin into their worship, God, who came before you uh, half-heartedly at best so often, God, and, and uh, this, this congregation that Joel spoke to is much like the one that, that sits before me this morning, God. It's mixed with those who are believing in Christ, believing in God, and, and those who are not. And so, Father, the, the offer, the invitation, the, even the command is to, to reckon with our sin, to see our sin and be sorrowful, God, to, to, to cast it away, to rend our hearts, to not have outward contrition, God, not to go through acts of piety, but to repent of sin, to turn away from sin, to cut off those things in our lives that displease you and to quit pretending like we're righteous when we're not. God, I pray that you, would, that you would send the penetrating and piercing power of your Spirit in with the gospel this morning as we look to the prodigal son uh, parable again. And as Andrew uh, opens that up again, God, I pray that the work of the Spirit would be ongoing, calling us to that solemn assembly, calling our hearts to repentance, calling us to reckon with our own self-righteousness. And that we would confess it, Lord, that we would repent of it, that we would cast it behind us, and that we would walk with you in faithfulness and righteousness, and that we would walk faithfully and lovingly and patiently with our brothers and sisters. God, also, I just want to take some time to remember the saints of this church, God, who are struggling. Those who, who come and those who can't come because of ongoing sickness, God. And so I, I remember Mary Handley, Lord, we lift her up to you and pray for her, for the relief of her suffering, God, as she lives with chronic illness, God. We, we pray for grace that you would help her and Danny in that struggle, God. We think of Ginger and Brent and, and the weight of all the work stress. And, and then with Ginger and, and her condition, God, we know that, that this is a hardship for them. And every day they wake up and face these struggles, but our heart is for them, God. And we desire you to lift that burden and to give them grace and peace, God, to, to handle the weight of this disease. God, we think of Sam and Ruth and, and Miss Burden and Kathy Drew and God all suffering and needing grace. And so we pray because every day they also wake up and face problems and hardships that many of us don't have to deal with. God, I think of Rick Grant and his struggles, God. I think of Ken Eubanks and, and his ongoing disease, God. And I pray for them and ask that you would encourage them. God, if it pleases you, we know that you can heal. And God, oftentimes you do heal and, and oftentimes you don't. And so I leave that decision in your hands. But what I know your saints need is to be upheld, to be loved by you, to, to sense that keeping power, that staying power, that, that faithfulness of God. And I pray that they would know that even in the midst of their deepest despair and hardest battles of str and struggles, God. We remember George Gilliland and his family, God, especially, and the hardships that they continue to face and the wisdom that he needs, God, and the grace and the patience and the energy. Pour it into him and give him words of, of grace and wisdom to share with his family, God. Bless his mom and dad. Change them, God, and, and restore them to health if it pleases you. God, be with Buddy Dow and his condition. God, help him as he faces uh, perhaps... Uh, 
treatments or surgery. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, God, but you know that there are some, some problems that, that have arisen in his life with his health, and we pray for him. And God, I also want to remember Wayne, who struggles, God, with chronic, uh, chronic illness and chronic discomfort. I pray, God, that you would help him and bless him, that you would eliminate, God, and alleviate the, the pain and suffering, and that you would be faithful to him and help him to be faithful to you in the midst of this ongoing plight. And God, we would pray for our Sunday school as we do our promotion. God, we pray that more people would feel the need and, and be drawn into fellowship in that way. That you would bless us as teachers, God, that we would not rely only on giftedness, but that we would plead for the Spirit's help every day, every time we study, every time we teach, God, that we would not presume to do it in yesterday's blessings, but God, that you would give fresh blessings for the day at hand, that we would minister in the strength and the might of the Lord, and that you, through that ministry, would change hearts and draw people to Christ, God, for salvation. And we ask that you would do that today. Loose your spirit, O oh God, to bring repentance among those who need Christ. And we praise you and thank you for it, O oh God, in his holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward at this time, and that's uh, Josh and Stacy Lee Hutchins. Uh, they're serving in Malawi, and we've had the blessing of just recently being able to take them on for support, and I'm Really excited about them and the work that God's going to use them to do. So let's continue to pray for them. They're just getting started, and so they need our prayers, certainly. And uh, this is part of what the things that we can do as God's people are faithful to give. So let's pray. Lord, we do lift up to you, Josh and Stacy Lee and their family. God, help them settle into this new community, into this new country that they're in. Uh, just give them peace in their family. This Help them make that transition, especially for their children. And uh, Lord, we pray that even now you'd begin to build connections and help Josh see the direction that this ministry needs to go. We just pray for your blessing. We pray that he would be able to train many pastors who for, for years and years ahead would be able to faithfully preach the gospel because of the training that they receive through this ministry. Uh, Lord, bless us. Help us to be cheerful givers and generous givers. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning as the children are headed out um, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at the same passage that we looked at last week, uh, but this week we're going to look at a different angle of this same parable. You know, the reality is with the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we so often focus or I said the Good Samaritan, I knew I was going to do that. The, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, we so often focus on the prodigal. In fact, in our day and time, I think most people see that parable as a story primarily about the younger son, about the prodigal son. Uh, in reality, in the context in which Jesus told that story, the story was much more about the older brother than it was the younger brother. And so let's read the, the parable this morning. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse number 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look! These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want to review a little bit of the context. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I do want us to remember that the point of this parable was directed toward the Pharisees. The the Pharisees were Jesus' main enemy in in the Gospels, and the Pharisees hated Jesus for multiple reasons, uh, but probably primarily because Uh, Jesus was sort of a competition to them. They had a place of honor, a a place of authority uh, and and honor in that society and in that culture. And Jesus was coming and was threatening uh, was threatening that whole system. They rejected also the notion that Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe that he was who he said he was. And more than just the fact that he was the Messiah, the fact that he claimed to be specially sent from God and, in fact, that he claimed to be the Son of God, they thought that was just utter blasphemy. They also hated Jesus because so much of his teaching was directed right at their self-righteous hypocrisy. And they hated him for that. Jesus said to them in Luke chapter 16, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You read the Gospels, and so often Jesus is just laying charge after charge against these self-righteous people. I told you last week a couple of the analogies that he used. One of them was like a a tomb. You know, there are a few things that are are more pleasant and, and more beautiful than walking out in a cemetery and seeing all the grave markers and just seeing that there's something peaceful and something beautiful about doing that on, on a nice, uh, pretty day. 
And Jesus said, this is what you're like, Pharisees. You're like those whitewashed tombs. They, they look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. If we were to begin to unearth and dig up what was underneath the ground and what was underneath those, those uh, gravestones, uh, that cemetery wouldn't be that nice, beautiful, serene place anymore. It would be a, a place that was disgusting. God's saying, look, Pharisees, that's what you look like. That's what you're like. You, you look beautiful. You look holy. You look righteous. You look religious on the outside. But inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones, all kinds of iniquity. One of the constant criticisms that the Pharisees leveled against Jesus was the fact that he accepted, that he ate, that he associated with and seemed to get along with people who were great, notorious sinners. Two of the greatest kinds of sinners in that day would have been tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes, and that was their claim repeatedly. In Luke chapter 5, verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in fact, as we showed last week, that is the context for this parable of the prodigal son. The, the prodigal son is only secondarily about the prodigal. It's primarily about the father's interaction with the older brother. In fact, we see that in verse number 2. In chapter 15, verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And it's because of this, then, that Jesus begins to tell three parables. And each one of those parables, he describes something that was lost and then was found, and the, the joy that came because that person found that. So there was a shepherd who lost his sheep, and he left the 99 sheep, and he went and found that one sheep that was lost, and he brought it back, and he celebrated. There was a woman who had 10 coins, 10 silver coins. She lost one of them, and she turns the house upside down. She finally finds that one coin, and she calls her friends, and she celebrates. There's joy when something that is lost is then found, and then the son, the prodigal son, is lost, and then he's found. And in each instance, the person rejoices. And, and Jesus is saying, that's what God is like. That's what heaven is like. When a sinner repents, when the worst, most vile sinner repents of their sin, God rejoices. There is a party in heaven when drug addicts and prostitutes and liars and thieves and murderers and abusers, there, there, there is a celebration in heaven when they repent. The, the third story, though, has this added feature of one person who's not celebrating, and that is this older brother. And that older brother is meant to depict the attitude of the Pharisees who are criticizing Jesus. He's celebrating and embracing these sinners who are being saved, and they're standing back and thinking, why is he eating with these people? Doesn't he know? The, the one time the, the, the woman who was a prostitute comes in and anoints his feet, and she's weeping tears, and, and, and the, the Pharisees that is there, he's like, if this guy really was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he wouldn't want anything to do with her. But she was rejoicing because she had found forgiveness and Christ was rejoicing with her and they could not understand that concept just like the older brother. The Pharisees' issue like that of the older brother was a 
self-righteousness that blinded them to their own need of grace and therefore caused them to refuse to extend grace to others. And ultimately, it made them bitter toward God, the Father who shows grace. So let's unpack that a little bit. The first thing that we see is that self-righteousness blinds us to our need of grace. Self-righteousness blinds us to our own need of grace. As we showed last week, uh, the prodigal son came to the point, it says that he came to himself, and that is a depiction, a description of, of his repentance. He came to an understanding that he needed grace from the Father. You remember his behavior, how awful his behavior was. He came to his father and he said, I want my inheritance now. Basically saying, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff and I want to get away from you. And the father gives in to that. He, he allows his son to have his part of the inheritance and run off. And then the son just spins it in the stupidest way possible. He just lavishes it out and has parties and he the older brother says that he wasted it with prostitutes i mean he just has no forethought there's no thinking process it's just go and do everything that i've ever wanted to do and just have as much fun as i can with with no concern of the consequences and then he runs out of, of money he dishonored his father he foolishly wasted uh, much of his possessions but then he came to himself and he knew that he was in desperate need of help. They ran out of money, and then there's a famine. And so he's really at the point of death. And he says, look, I've got to return to my father. My father's gracious. He gives even his servants more than they need. They have more food than, than they even need. So I'll just return to him. And I'm going to tell my father, Father, I know I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. I know that I've messed up so bad. I've sinned against you and against God, against heaven in such a a horrific way that I'm not even worthy to be allowed back into the family, but I would ask for grace and mercy that you might make me one of your servants. And the father won't hear of any of that. The father lavishes his love and grace on the son and welcomes him back in. But the, the prodigal came to understand that his only hope was grace. I don't deserve this. I've acted so wickedly and so horrifically that, that, that I really don't even belong in this family anymore. And my only my only hope is that my father's merciful and he's good and he's kind and I think that he'll welcome me in even if it's only as a servant. But you see, the problem with the older brother was that he didn't think he needed grace. He didn't see his need of grace. You, you notice, do, do you see this in chapter 15 when the son begins to speak? What is it that makes him so angry? What is it that keeps him as his whole family and the whole town has gathered probably to eat the fatted calf and to have this great party? What is it that keeps him out? Well, you notice in verse 29, I never disobeyed your command. I never disobeyed your command. It's this son's self-righteousness it's it's his thinking that he has it all together it's his thought process that there's no need for grace in his life there's no need for his 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 father to demonstrate this kind of grace to him because he's never done anything that's really in need of that kind of grace now, any self-aware person would, would know that, that they would hesitate from saying such a bold statement i never disobeyed your command I think what he means here, what he must mean, is that I've never disobeyed 
like this other son of yours, like the younger brother. Certainly he had disobeyed his father's commands, but, but, but what he's doing here is what self-righteous people always do. It's called justification by comparison. You see, the Bible teaches that we're justified by faith and by grace, uh, but, but self-righteous people always tend to try to be justified by comparison. It's, it's not just who I am in and of myself, but it's who I am compared to others. So Luke 18 verse 9 says this, He told this parable about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Why do self-righteous people, people who trust in their own righteousness, why do they treat other people with contempt? Because they have to. Because the ground of their justification, the ground of their relationship with God is, I'm not as bad as that person, so I've got to distance myself. I've got to look down on them and think, man, they're nowhere near where I am. So that contempt and that, that pride just oozes out of a self-righteous person. In fact, that's what Jesus goes on in that parable that uh, in Luke 18 that I was just reading, and we've mentioned this before, but he talks about the Pharisee who goes into the temple to pray, and what does he say? I thank you, God, that you have demonstrated such mercy and grace on a miserable sinner like me. No, that's not what the Pharisee says. The Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. I do this, and I'm religious, and I fast, and I give. I thank you that I'm not like other men, and especially like this tax collector. Self-righteous people hold other people in contempt because they are being justified by comparing themselves to others. And that's what this older son is, is doing here. Do you see this? He says, I've never disobeyed your commandment. And, and yet, he, he says, I've, you've never gave me a goat that I might celebrate. But then he compares himself in verse 13. But when this son of yours came, you see, it's justification by comparison. Look at, look at me. I've always been a faithful son. I've always worked in the field. I've always slaved away for you. And then this son of yours comes and he's wasted your wealth on, he's wasted it on prostitutes and you welcome him back in. But the problem is, that God looks deeper than the surface level comparisons that we, we like to make. Again, in Luke 16, that passage I cited earlier, he says, you are those, talking about the Pharisees, who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. You see, in order to be righteous, we don't just have to demonstrate that we're better than other people. We have to demonstrate that we're without sin in God's eyes. It's, it's before God and it's before His judgment. It's, it's in His eyes that we're being compared, not in comparison to other people. We can look pretty good in comparison to other people. And that's what self-righteous people always do. But listen, God looks deeper than that. And He says, God knows your heart. So that's the issue here. Now when we look a little deeper in this older son... Although this is a parable and we don't get a lot of backstory and, and sometimes it's dangerous to go kind of making up details that aren't there. But I think we can spot the son's disobedience, the older son's disobedience right here in, in this story without, without too much uh, effort. We see, first of all, the son's dishonor for his father. 
here the father is throwing this great party. And we talked about last, last week how this is a shame and honor culture and how it's very important to honor those who are in authority and especially parents and fathers. This was, this was like one of the big things you didn't do was to disrespect uh, your father, especially in the sight of others. I mean, it's one thing to, to say some kind of disrespectful comment in the home, but, but here they've gathered the whole community, the whole town is there, the family is there, everyone is celebrating, and his son stays out. His son is so angry, he refuses to come into the party, and he makes the father get up and leave the party in the sight of everybody. Everybody's looking, and they see the sun coming. They see the sun out there. They realize there's a problem, and the son has the father has to do the humbling thing of getting up and leaving and going and entreating the son to come in. What a dishonoring thing for a son to do to his father. And then we see the disdain. The Bible says, "Honor your your father and your mother." This this son is not honoring his father. There's disdain in, in the way that the, the son speaks to the father. And you see it, it's like dripping from every word. Look, these many years I have served you. And that's the word doulos, that's the word slave. Look, I've been slaving away for you. And you never gave me a goat. You never threw a party for me. And then look at this, your son. He doesn't even call him your bro my brother. He says, this son of yours who's wasted everything with prostitutes and just wasted your, your wealth. When he shows up, you, you throw a party for him. He shows his utter contempt and disdain for his father. And then we see, I think, really the true motivation for the, the older brother is that the, the older brother is not really that different from the younger brother. The older son is much more like the prodigal than it seems at first, the older son shows his true motivation really it is no different than the younger son. He's concerned about the father's stuff and receiving his due honor. He's, he's worried about that, but he cares nothing for the father. He doesn't love the father. He doesn't delight in the father. He, he doesn't have a good relationship with his father because in this moment, all of that anger and disdain and disrespect that he has for his father just blows up and it shows his true heart. This son is no different than, than the younger son in his contempt for the older, for, for the father. He wants, just like the younger son, he's concerned about the stuff and, and the honor. He's, he wants control over the riches, but you see, he seeks to do it in a completely different way than, than the prodigal. Let me read this from Tim Keller. I think he so accurately depicts what's going on here. He says, what did the younger son want most in life? The younger son, the prodigal. He chafed at having to partake of his family's assets under the father's supervision. He wanted to make his own decisions and have unfettered control of his portion of the wealth. How did he get that? He did it with a bold power play, a flagrant defiance of community standards, a declaration of complete independence. What did the older son most want? If we think about it, we, we realize that he wanted the same thing as his brother. He was just as resentful of the father as the younger son. He too wanted the father's goods rather than the father himself. He goes on to say the, the hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. 
They each wanted to get into a position in which they could tell the Father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled. But one did so by being very bad, and the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the Father's heart. Both were lost sons. You see, this son has no love for his father. He too wants control, but his means of accomplishing that has been obedience. He thinks if I always do what is right, I will get control. I will have authority over this. You see, the reality is for all of us is that sometimes obedience isn't really obedience. Sometimes obedience isn't really obedience. His, his obedience was external obedience, and it came with ulterior motives. Its end was not to please his father. He didn't love his father. He didn't delight in his father. He had no joy in his father. The goal of his obedience was to set himself up as the one who could make demands of his father. He doesn't care for the father. He only cares about the rights that his obedience has earned him. In reality, though, True obedience must come from, and it always comes from, a heart of love. That's what Jesus taught uh, about our obedience as, as Christians. When, when he was teaching, he asked, What's, what are the greatest commandments? What's the greatest commandment? And, and someone asked him that, and he responds, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The reason that is, is because true obedience will flow from a heart that loves God. True obedience will issue out of a heart that truly loves God. Any obedience or, or any, any seeming obedience that doesn't come from a place of love for God is not really obedience. It's deficient obedience. And what this is saying here is that motivation matters. It's not just what you do but why you do it that God cares about. Remember, he says, you justify yourselves before men, but God looks at your heart. Why does he look at your heart? What does your heart matter? You, if, as long as you do what you're supposed to do, as long as you go to church, as long as you give, as long as you read your Bible, what does it matter? Well, well the issue is that what's going on in your heart as you come into church as you put that offering into the offering plate, as you read the Bible, what's going on in your heart matters as much as what's going on outside of your heart. God cares about our hearts. And that's what's going on with this older son. He's always doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's always working in the field. He never ran off with prostitutes. He never took the dad's money and, and ran off and made all these stupid decisions. He never did any of that. But in his heart, he disdained his father. He hated his father. He had no love for him. Despite these obvious instances of sin, the, the older brother, the, the older son, views himself as flawless. And so he doesn't see his need of grace. So he can stand there with all of this contempt, with all of this hatred for his older father. He can stand there and, and in good conscience, he can say, look, what, what's going on here? I've never disobeyed you. Right, right, you've never ran off and done any of these things, but what's going on in your heart? There's serious rebellion at work in your heart, and that matters as much as the external. This is what we're prone to do, I, I think. We're, we're prone to do the same thing. We're, we're prone, we look at the, the major failures of other people, 
and we justify ourselves by comparison. We say, well, look, I've never done those things. I've never done anything really awful. I've been a good father. I've, I've done these things. But the problem is we never fail to closely examine our own hearts and our own motivations. And that's, that needs to be done when it comes to obedience. The second thing that we see here this morning is that self-righteousness infuriates us when we see grace. For the self-righteous person, they become very angry when they see a true demonstration of grace. What caused this older brother's anger? Why is he so mad? Why is he so ticked off that he's dishonoring his father and he's refusing to go into this party? What is it that keeps him from going in? It's grace. This son of yours has done all of these and now you're going to throw him a party? Grace always infuriates self-righteous people. Grace has a, a double edge to it. On, on the positive side, the self-righteous person gets angry when the father gives grace to the prodigal. He doesn't deserve this. He hasn't earned this. He, he's, been, he's already wasted a third of your wealth that you've given to him. He does not deserve a party. Why would you be doing this? How can you do that? But then there's the negative side. This is also on display in, in the response of the older brother. The self-righteous person gets angry when he doesn't get what he feels he deserves. You see, self-righteous people are people who feel like they deserve something from God. That's what's going on with the older brother. Number one, I'm mad because you're giving him something he doesn't deserve. And then look at me. I've slaved away for you. I've worked for you. I've always been faithful. And you have never thrown a party for me. This is the double edge of what makes, what makes grace so infuriating for a self-righteous person. They don't deserve that. And I deserve more. That's what's going on. Self-righteousness leads to this kind of anger because it feels like others are getting things they don't deserve and I'm not getting what I do deserve. Now you see this sometimes, and I don't want to get off track here, but you, you do see this sometimes in Christians' lives who, who are serving the Lord and then something happens and they just get outraged. Why would I get cancer? I've been serving the Lord. Why, why would this happen to me? Why, why would I lose my child? Why would I go through this financial difficulty? Why would God let me go through this? You see, we've got to be careful that we're not developing a mindset of self-righteousness. Listen, anything this side of hell is grace. Any, the, the next breath that you take is not anything that God owes you. It is grace. The, the gift of tomorrow, the gift of having any kind of job and any kind of uh, living that you're making is a gift of God's grace. We don't deserve anything. And so we cannot complain when those things are deprived. You know, the reality is there's, there's no one quite so hateful and angry as a self-righteous person who perceives that they're being treated unfairly. This is why self-righteous people have sometimes a hard time forgiving others. Because their whole mindset is based on you get what you deserve. You do what's good and you get good. You do what's bad and you get bad. So if you do something bad to me, I'm not going to forgive you until that wrong is righted. Self-righteous people have the hardest time forgiving others because they think, I can't just let that go. I just can't, I just can't wash that away like it never happened. That's what grace is. 
Grace is saying, I'm going to forgive that. There's, there's no need for retribution. There's no need for you to try to make it right and even the score. I'm just going to absolve you and, and, and wash away that offense. But self-righteous people can't do that. This is also why some of the most bitter, bitter people in churches are self-righteous people. They're bitter toward God and it makes them cantankerous toward others. They're angry sometimes because they feel like they've slaved away for God and God in some way or other has not held up his end of the bargain. I've served the Lord and now this is happening. And so they become very bitter. You know, the reality is I think we all like the idea of grace. But sometimes when we see grace truly at work, it can be rather offensive. It's offensive sometimes when you when you see somebody getting something, you think, I, I can't believe God would bless them like that. I've been working and God just gives it to them. You know, they get the promotion and I'm I'm stuck here. And it, it can be infuriated. It can be offensive. It can be offensive when someone gets something they don't deserve while you don't get what you think you do deserve. Why is it that grace is so offensive, do you think? I think. It's because God's grace is a free choice. And often he doesn't, he doesn't dispense grace in the way that we think he should. Right? If we were up there on the throne, we would not bless that person like that. And we would maybe bless this person because we think they're pretty good and we certainly bless ourselves. Uh, but, but God's grace, because he's completely free, sometimes, in fact very often, he blesses and demonstrates His grace to those who are most unworthy. And we look at it and we think, I can't believe that. And that's the offense of grace. Grace, you see, grace begins with the foundation that no one is worthy of anything from God. You see, if you start out with this thinking that, well, you, you become worthy of receiving things from God by doing stuff. And then you think, well, I've done this much, so, so I really am this worthy to receive good things from God. And then God doesn't give you those things. It rocks your world. And you say, why wouldn't God give me these things? I've kind of earned it. And then you look at somebody else and you realize they've earned nothing. Look at the way they live their life and I can't believe that. And then God just lavishly pours out His grace on them and you're thinking, why is it that they're all healthy and they're all strong and they're all... They're wealthy and they've got everything together. Well, that's God's grace. And sometimes He doesn't give grace like we think that, that, that He should. And so it's offensive. The reality is for grace to be grace, it has to be undeserved. God doesn't give us good things because we deserve them. Grace is undeserved. It's, if it's of works, Paul says, it's no more of grace. If you get good things from God on the basis of the way that you live and the way that you act, then it isn't grace. It's, it's works. See, we have to understand what Jacob said in, in the book of Genesis. We have to have this mindset. When, when Jacob says to the Lord, I am not worthy of the least of your blessings. That's grace. I'm not worthy of anything from God. So anything that God gives to me is a blessing. It's not something I've earned or, 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 or merited. It's only once we've truly grasped that, that that we will be able to get rid of that anger and offense. God owes you nothing and He can choose to give you nothing without compromising His justice in the slightest. God owes us nothing and He can choose to give the worst, most vile sinners everything without compromising His justice in the slightest. Grace, then, is the foundation of the Gospel. 
Grace is the foundation of the gospel. You understand this. No one is going to heaven because they deserve it. Let me just repeat that. No one deserves to go to heaven and no one will be in heaven because they deserve it. Everyone who goes to heaven is going to be there as a display of God's free grace. What, what this means is there, there are going to be many people who by our standards should be in heaven. By our standards. We think they're good people. They're in the community. They're working. They're, you know, they give. They're, they're just nice salt-of-the-earth kind of people, there, there will be many people like that who will not be in heaven. And there will be many people we think they don't deserve to be in heaven, but they will be there because we enter into heaven by God's grace and not by our merits. I heard someone recently say, you, you know, you mean to tell me that you, know, you could go out and commit murder and then you repent of your sin and turn to Christ, and it doesn't matter. You can just be forgiven and go to heaven. How would you answer that? The, the answer is yes. That's exactly right. Now, don't let grace encourage you to go out and commit murder or go out to com commit any sin, but that's exactly the way that grace works. And that's exactly what this prodigal son is teaching us. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you turn to the Lord in repentance, He will give you grace. Look at the Apostle Paul. He, Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. He, he was a persecutor of Christ and of His church. And he received grace that he might be an example. Look at those who crucified Christ. You think that, that might be the greatest sin that's ever been committed to see the Messiah, the Son of God, and to crucify Him and be part of that. And yet Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the gospel. And, and some of the very people who were responsible for that are hearing the gospel preach. And they say to Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. You can be forgiven for crucifying Christ. There's nothing greater, no greater sin than that. Because salvation is by grace and grace alone, heaven will be full of the most vile sinners. Do you believe that this morning? Heaven will be full of the most vile sinners and hell will be full of moral do-gooders. Heaven will be occupied by people who have committed all kinds of injustice. Heaven will be full of thieves. You know, I, I talked this morning in our Sunday school class about just the anger that comes over people when, when somebody steals something from them. If that's ever happened to you, you just know it just makes your blood boil. Heaven will be full of thieves who have repented. CEOs who have stolen retirement funds of their employees while they make millions. Heaven will, be, heaven will be occupied by those kind of people who repent and turn to Christ. Heaven will be full of adulterous women who have stolen away other women's husbands and wrecked families. Heaven will be full of men who have been unfaithful and unloving to their wives. Heaven will be full of drug dealers who have chosen profit over the well-being of others in society. Heaven will be full of liars who have deceived for no other reason than for their own good. Heaven will be full of abusive husbands and fathers. Heaven will be full of those people that we sometimes say about them, there's a special place in hell waiting for those people, for those kind of people. The reality is for some of those people who turn to Christ in repentance, there's a special place in heaven for them. Heaven will be full of racists. 
All you have to do is look at the Apostle Peter. I don't know if there was a bigger racist ever than the Apostle Peter. He hated Gentiles. So much so that God had to give him a special vision to show them that, that his salvation included Gentile people. Heaven will be populated by people who have been murdering abusive slave traders. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, the vileness of, of taking people who have been ripped from their families and from their community and, and enslaved and then stuffing them in the bottom of a ship and, and barely feeding them enough to, to get them to England or to here in, in America? And people who did those kind of things, some of them who have turned to Christ will be saved. And you say, I don't know about that one. And yet we sing a song written by a slave trader who did those very kinds of things. John Newton is the one who wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When John Newton sang that and when he penned those words, he knew I am a wretch. I'm a murderer. I've done the vilest things that humanity can do. But he turned in repentance and faith to Christ and he will be in heaven. Heaven will be full of terrorists. People like the Apostle Paul who persecuted the church. It will be full of people who are rapists, drunks and druggies and even child abusers. Can, can you say that? Can, can, can a child abuser be forgiven? I had a hard time even writing that, but I just, wanted, I just wanted to say that because I want to think of the most horrific kind of sin that, that we could identify. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. And that's what, you might be getting angry and think, I can't believe he would say that. I, I can't believe that he just said that a child abuser could be forgiven because of repentance and, and end up in heaven. And, and the reality is that that is the, great, the way that grace works. And that's why the Pharisees were getting so angry at Jesus. I can't believe he would say prostitutes and tax collectors are going to go to heaven before us. The Pharisees, to everybody's outside view, they were the good people in society. They were the pillars of the community. They were people who did charity. They were people who were religious. And Jesus came and he said, you're not going to heaven, but tax collectors and prostitutes are. That's, that's the way that grace works. But let's take it up even a notch. Many of those kinds of people will be in heaven, the, the worst, most vile kinds of sinners, and yet many moral people, people who we would say they're salt of the earth, good people, will not be in heaven. Hell will be full of people who have done charity work, full of good fathers and mothers who have always done right by their children, by religious church-going people, Hell will be full of people who faithfully gave financially to the church. Hell will be full of upstanding citizens, pillars of the community, philanthropists. Hell will be full of deacons and pastors from Southern Baptist churches. Hell will be full of people about whom we say they are just good people. That's why grace is so offensive. Those who don't deserve it seem to get it. And those in our eyes, in our eyes, not in God's eyes, but in, in our eyes, those who do deserve it don't get it so often. Again, in Matthew 21, 31, truly, truly, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus said to the most religious people of his day. Our anger at grace, you see, is derived from this 
from this misconception that there are two classes of people. There are people who kind of deserve it because of the good things they've done, and there are people who don't deserve it because of the things that they've done. And what Jesus is doing is just obliterating that, and he's saying the reality is, the reality is there, are, there is no one who deserves it. There is, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so God has an even playing field before him. And if he decides to give grace to one person and not give it to the other, then he is free to do that. It's, it's his free choice. He's, he's free to do as he pleases. And nobody can say, that's unjust. That's not right. That is free grace. That's what so enraged the Pharisees that they wanted to kill Jesus. And that's our final point this morning, and we'll close with this, but self-righteousness rejects the Father of grace. It rejects the Father of grace. The story ends here with the Son still on the outside, and that's for a point. The, the point is that the Pharisees are there before Jesus, and they're complaining and, and the story kind of serves to point their sin to them and help them see their own condition. But, but it also serves as an invitation to them because it kind of brings them to a decision point. Are you going to go in and celebrate with the Messiah who's bringing salvation to these sinners? Or are you going to let your self-righteousness keep you on the outside and say, I can't believe that God would give grace to them and not to me? Is, is that what you're going to do? And so it brings us to a decision point. This morning, perhaps some of you are here and you've always thought that you're going to go to heaven because, well, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm working for the Lord. I'm, I'm serving the Lord, just like the older son was serving his father. And you think, well, surely he will show me kind of surely if anybody goes to heaven, I, I will go to heaven. I've been a good father. I mean, I'm not perfect. I know I've got some imperfections, but I've always obeyed the, the heavenly father. And so surely I'll go to heaven. The reality is, if that is your attitude, you are not going to go to heaven. If your hope is set on what you've done and you're standing before God, your own righteousness, you will not go to heaven no matter what you've done in your life. It is only through repentance, recognizing our sinfulness and turning to Christ. And the invitation is for anyone. Here, the father goes out and he entreats the son. He pleads with the son, come in. Look, I've, I've always, you've always been with me. There, there's no reason. I had to celebrate when my son came home. And so it is that Christ entreats you this morning. If you've been thinking that you're saved by your good deeds, look, look get rid of that. Put away your self-righteousness so that you can receive God's grace. You need to come to terms with the fact that you don't deserve it. Just like the younger son, you need to say to yourself, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, but if you'll have me, I'll, I will come in. That's what you need to do this morning. And if you do that, God will receive you. And I invite you to do that this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are here who are engulfed in their own self-righteousness. Perhaps, Lord, there are some here that their entire lives they've been building a structure of righteousness, of their own good deeds. And Lord, I pray that you would just bring that crumbling down around them. Help them to see their own sin. Help them to see their unworthiness so that they will be in a position with open hands to receive your grace. I pray that you would work in that way. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.